We're going to pause from our study of the Gospel of John, and this morning we're going to look in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at the last four verses, verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. I read about a church up north that was built many, many years ago. And back then, when they built this particular church, there was only one door going into and out of the sanctuary. Everyone who came in, everyone who went out, all had to pass through that same door. Well, they put up a big sign right above that door, and this is what it said. Servants' entrance. That was their way of reminding everyone who entered, you are to be a servant. As my wife said a moment ago, we are saved to serve. That is the reason why God keeps us here. That's the only reason why he does not immediately call us home to heaven It is so we can serve. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. I think you already know, however, just how much this goes against the grain of our society, our culture, how most people think around us. A lot of people remind me of this first grade teacher who was talking to the little boys and girls in her class one day, and she asked them, what are some of the things you do to serve? What are some of the things you do to help out around the house? And there was one little girl that quickly raised her hand and she said, I wash the dishes. And the teacher said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad. And there was another boy who raised his hand. He said, well, I sweep the floor. And the teacher again, she said, man, that is fantastic. But there was one little boy in the back. He wasn't participating. He didn't raise his hand at all. And finally, she pointed him out and said, you, what do you do to help out around the house? And he said, I stay out of the way. Well, folks, God did not save us, and he has not called us to stay out of the way. We are saved to serve. Now, the passage we're going to look at this morning is a transition in the gospel of Matthew. Until this point, Jesus has been serving, and the disciples have been watching. He's serving, they're observing. We get to chapter 10, however, and Jesus takes that baton and he hands it off to them and they begin to serve. These last four verses of Matthew chapter 9 are what come in between. And this passage is kind of like a summary of how Jesus lived his life and how he conducted his ministry while he was walking upon this earth. Just four verses, so let's look at our passage here, starting in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. 
because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In these four verses, I believe we see four things that Jesus did, all of which, if we understand them, will help us to follow his example of being a servant. And the first thing he did that we notice, I want you to see the ministry Jesus performed. The ministry that Jesus performed. Look again at verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Notice he went into all the towns and villages. The Jewish historian Josephus, uh, in the early part of the second century, he recorded, said that there were about 200 cities and villages in Galilee, an area about 40 miles wide, 70 miles long. And he said that there were about 3 million people who lived there at that time. Matthew says Jesus went to all of those villages. He went to all of those cities, pouring out his life, ministering to and serving people. Now, Matthew summarizes what Jesus did as he served in three things. And it's very clear in the text. He said that Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. He went about teaching in their synagogues. In the synagogues because that's where most of the teaching took place. That's where most of the people went to learn the scriptures. We also know that at times Jesus taught outside of the synagogues. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. But much of his teaching took place in the synagogues. What did Jesus teach? Well, we read the Gospels and we see that he taught about things like prayer, how to pray. He taught about salvation. He taught about forgiveness, how to be forgiven, how to forgive other people. He taught about how to deal with difficult people, how to love your enemies. He taught about the law. He taught about hypocrisy. He taught about greed. He taught about heaven and hell and judgment. He taught about things like marriage, sex, and money. He talked about how to deal with anxiety and how to overcome worry. In other words, Jesus taught about all the same things people are dealing with today just as relevant today as they were back then. He taught. But notice what comes next. He went about teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He preached. Now, what did he preach? The gospel of the kingdom. That word gospel, of course, means good news. Jesus went about everywhere telling people good news, the good news that sinners can be part of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? People love to ask that question. Simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God in the hearts and the lives of people. 
the rule and the reign of God in the hearts and lives of people. And it's just as real as any other kingdom. Every time a man or woman is born again, you know what happens? The kingdom of God grows by one person. I was reading that historians say there are about 500 different kingdoms that they have recognized at different points in human history. 500 kingdoms of man, just one kingdom of God. 500 kingdoms that are temporary, one kingdom that is eternal, that will last forever and forever. And for three and a half years, Jesus went from city to city and village to village telling people, good news, you, yes, you can be a part of this kingdom. In spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion against God, you can be citizens of the kingdom of God. And the coming of Jesus means God's kingdom is open to whosoever will come, whosoever will believe. And that is good news. Jesus taught, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, and notice then he went about healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, I personally believe that healing is mentioned third because it was least in importance. But it was important. And Jesus devoted a lot of time and energy to healing. He healed the lame. He healed lepers. He healed the blind. He healed the demon-possessed. He was the Son of God, and yet he came from heaven to earth and spent all of his time, day after day after day, healing and meeting physical needs of the people. He met their physical needs so that he could then point them to spiritual realities. But Jesus poured himself out, ministering and serving and meeting the basic needs of people. Now, you put all of this together. Teaching touches the mind. It tells us what we need to know, to know how to be saved and how to grow after we are saved. Preaching touches the heart. It challenges us to apply what we've learned and to surrender and follow Christ. Healing touches the body. Put it all together, Jesus ministered to and served the whole person. Now, this is all very elementary, but we need to hear this. And the reason why we need to hear this is because if Jesus lived this way, and if we are followers of Jesus, is this not how we are to live as well? If Jesus busied himself doing these things, should not we be doing the same things. You see, service isn't something that we do on the side, in our spare time, if we have any. Serving was a way of life. For Jesus, it should be a way of life for us. And yet, how many of you understand there's a big, big difference between the way Jesus lived and the way many of his professed followers are living today? Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. The average American, on the other hand, goes about spending two and a half hours per day on social media and seven hours per day watching some kind of a screen. 
and 78,000 hours per lifetime watching television almost nine years of one's life. Is that why we're here? Is that our purpose? Is this what we should be doing? And yet, according to Pew Research, about 30% of church members will be actively serving at any given time. Is it just me, or is there not a big, big difference between how Jesus invested his life and how most of us are investing our lives? And please understand, as I'm preaching to you, I'm also preaching to myself right now. And and I love to watch a good football game as much as anybody. I mean, I'm a Jaguars fan, so I don't get to see good football that often. But you get the point. I mean, I I, I love to watch uh, uh, my favorite team play. But, But And I realize there are other people who err on the other side. There are some people who, yes, they work and they serve but they never rest. That's another sermon for another Sunday. Most of us need to reevaluate our priorities. We need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with our time, with our energy, with our spiritual gifts, with our resources? If Jesus' life was about teaching and preaching and healing, shouldn't our lives be about the same thing? So it's important that we see the ministry Jesus performed. But then this next one, this is also so important. We also see the compassion Jesus felt. The compassion Jesus felt. Look again at verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd multitudes, great multitudes of people follow Jesus. And when he saw the multitudes coming, when he saw the crowds, notice what he did not do, what he did not say. He did not say, oh man, look at all that traffic. What a headache. No, Matthew says he was moved with compassion. That word compassion, if you do not know, It is a very important word. In the Greek, that word is splachnizomai. Is that not the ugliest word you have ever heard in any language in your entire life? I mean, in English, it sounds so nice. It sounds lovely. Compassion. But then in the Greek, it's Splotchnismai. That's so ugly. Do you know why that is? That's because the verb here that he's using to have compassion, it comes from the Greek word for guts. When Matthew says that Jesus was, was moved with compassion, that means he could feel it in his guts. That means Jesus felt like a heavyweight fighter had just punched him in the guts. That was his reaction. Now, we can't help but wonder. It must have taken something real big for Jesus to respond like this, to feel like somebody had punched him in the guts, right? So what was it? 
Verse 36 tells us, he saw the people, not just who they were on the outside, who he saw who they were on the inside, not just who they pretended to be, but who they really were. He saw that they were weary. People carrying heavy burdens they were not meant to carry. People who were just heartbroken. People who were tired and hopeless and worried. In other words, just like the people that surround us day after day. Just like them. Jesus saw the people. He saw that they were scattered. I looked it up every other time, without exception, that that word scattered appears in the New Testament, it always refers to something being thrown to the ground. For example, Judas Iscariot threw his silver on the ground. In Acts 27, they threw the anchors into the water. So when the Bible says that Jesus saw the people was moved with compassion because they were scattered, Jesus saw that figuratively speaking, spiritually speaking, it was as if the people had been body slammed by the devil and by this world. Matthew says that he saw people who were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you understand how tragic that is? Because sheep are not very smart. They wander about aimlessly. In fact, sheep, this has actually been recorded. This has actually happened. They will literally just follow each other walking off a cliff. Sheep need a shepherd. They desperately need a shepherd to guide them. But when Jesus saw the people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we will not care for people the way Jesus cared for people until we see people the way Jesus saw them. We must see them the way Jesus saw them. Unfortunately, the way many of us see people, it reminds me of a a story A few years back in Los Angeles, California, there was a police officer who was out on the street doing his duty. He noticed that there was a Cadillac that was illegally parked. And so this police officer walked up, saw where it was parked. He pulled out his pad. He wrote down the tag number of that car. He filled out his citation. He walked along to the driver's side. The window was already rolled down. There was the driver sitting upright, quietly behind the wheel. He explained to the driver what he had done wrong, why he was giving him the ticket, what he needed to do. He took that ticket, reached over, placed it on the dashboard, and went along his way. What that police officer never noticed in the process of doing all of that was that that man sitting behind the wheel was dead and had been dead for about 12 hours. Noticed his car, filled out the ticket, did not see, did not really see the man behind the wheel. You know, sometimes I think we're like that police officer. We're so busy giving out our spiritual citations. We're so busy telling the world what they should do or what they should have done. And yet somehow in the midst of all that, we fail to actually see people as they are. Weary, scattered, sheep without a shepherd, people who are spiritually dead and need life. And so I just ask you, what would Jesus see and how would Jesus react and how would Jesus feel looking at Homestead, looking at Miami-Dade County, 
How would he feel about the amount of lostness in our community? How would he respond to the many that are addicted to alcohol and drugs? What about the homeless or the exiles, the refugees that we see more and more of in our own backyard? What about that single mom that's just trying to get by because dad is no longer in the picture? And I could go on and on and on. But here's the point. Are we not surrounded by people who are weary and scattered and sheep without a shepherd? Where's our compassion? Where's my compassion? Do we feel like we've been punched in the gut? And if not, why not? Some of us have what we call compassion fatigue. You know what that is? Compassion fatigue. We're just so used to seeing it. We're just so used to seeing lost people and lonely people and hurting people. It's as if our feelings have been seared a bit. And so the question that I have this morning is, how do we regain that compassion of Christ? Well, you can start by doing what Jesus did. You know what he did? He touched the lepers. He had dinner with tax collectors. He spent time with outcasts. He was a friend of sinners. Show up. Rub shoulders with people in need, people who are not like you. It's called the ministry of presence, just being there with them, just being present for them. That might be part of the solution right there. And would to God that we all had that same compassion of Christ, that feeling of being punched in the gut when we look at our city, at our community, people who are weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. We see the compassion Jesus felt. We also see the reality Jesus described. The reality Jesus described. Verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, at harvest time, if you've been at that at some place in the country where it was the wheat harvest, it was that time of year, and you look out over the fields and you see all of the stalks of grain, it is such a beautiful, beautiful sight. But what happens if that grain is left to itself? It will die. Someone has to harvest it. Someone has to bring it in. Uh, this reminds us of what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he's in Samaria and he's speaking to the woman at the well. He offers her living water. She then goes into the town and tells everybody about this man that she met who knew everything about her. And remember what the people said, we want to meet him for ourselves. And so here's Jesus. He's still seated at the well. He looks up, crowds of people coming towards him. And do you remember in that moment what he said to his disciples? He says to his disciples, hey, you guys think that there are four months left until the harvest. Think again. He said, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields. The harvest is ready now. He was talking about a harvest 
of souls. And yes, truly, the harvest is great. Something else about this harvest metaphor that I want to remind you of, almost always when we see this in Scripture, and we see this over and over again, especially amongst the Old Testament prophets, they're always using this harvest metaphor, almost always the harvest that is being spoken of is a harvest of judgment. A harvest of judgment. The imagery that Jesus is using in verse 37 is imagery that emphasizes the fact that every single person in that harvest is one day going to stand before God and give an account. They're going to stand before God as lawbreakers guilty before a holy God. This is the harvest that he's talking about. And yes, the harvest is great. A great harvest of people who are going to stand before God, but there's a problem. Jesus said, here it is, the laborers are few. The problem is not the size of the harvest. The problem is the lack of workers. God can always handle the size of the harvest. That's never the issue. The issue is the number of servants who are willing to work. And so when you read this, my hope is that you will make this personal. When Jesus said the harvest is great, but the laborers are few, that's not just something that was true way back then. That's something that is still true now. That's not just something that was true in some faraway place. That is something that is true right here in Homestead and even in First Baptist Church of Homestead. I will be very honest with you this morning, and I'll just tell you, there are ministries, great ministries, that ended with the pandemic and never came back. Not because we didn't want to, but because the laborers are few. And there are ministries that we have in this church right now, great ministries, some of which we've been doing for years, and right now they're hanging on by a thread. Some of them are down to just one person. And if we lose that one person, that whole ministry is gone. That's, that's just the reality of where we're at right now. Why is that? Because the laborers are few. There are ministries that we ought to be doing things that I believe that God's called us to do, that we could be doing to reach our community for Jesus Christ, but we're not because the laborers are few. There's always more harvest than laborers. That's not anything new, but here's the question. What do we do about that? That leads to one final thing. I want you to notice the answer Jesus gave. The answer Jesus gave. Jesus said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So we think we know what he's about to say next. But look at verse 38. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We think Jesus is going to say, the harvest is great, the laborers are few, therefore go. But that's not what Jesus does. Now, he gets to the go part eventually, doesn't he? Matthew 28, we quote it every Sunday. But that's not what he says right here. For now, he says, pray. What are we to pray for? Oh, he wants us to pray for the lost, right? We should pray for the lost, but that's actually not what he says here either. He doesn't tell us to pray for the harvest. He tells us to pray to the Lord of the harvest for more harvesters. He doesn't tell us to pray for the lost here. He tells us to pray for 
laborers. And by the way, this word for pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest, about 50% of the time that word shows up in the New Testament, the Greek word. It's not even used in the context of prayer, of talking to God. It's actually translated to beg or to plead. The context is somebody begging somebody else for something. And so Jesus tells us we are to cry out to God from the depths of our hearts. We are to beg. We are to plead for more laborers. Now, I wonder if sometimes those folks in the church who are working and who are serving and who are faithful, so, so faithful, I wonder if sometimes you're not guilty of complaining so much about the lack of servants that you haven't really gotten around to praying for servants, praying for labors the way Jesus tells us to in verse 38. That you haven't really prayed for laborers in this way. But this is a prayer every Christian ought to pray. We ought to beg God to send us more labors. But when you do, be careful. Be careful. You know why? Because when you begin to pray for laborers, it may just turn out that you are the answer to the prayer that you are praying. You might be the answer to the prayer you are praying. Normally when we pray, we know how it works. We pray God answers. But there's something about this particular prayer. There's a sense here in which you get to be part of the answer. Now, Matthew kind of shows us this a little bit. He does something very interesting, but unfortunately we normally miss it. We miss it because of that chapter division that comes after verse 38. Remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions in any of the ancient manuscripts. But when we normally read this story, we get to verse 38. Jesus tells them, pray for more labors. End of chapter. So we stop reading. But Matthew, as he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he didn't stop right there. The very next verse, it says he called the 12 disciples and gave them authority. Matthew then gives us the names of those 12 disciples. And then immediately in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus said, pray for laborers. Then he sends them out as laborers. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then he immediately sends them into the harvest. He said, yes, pray for workers. And then he said, get to work. What's the point? The point is, and I say this in all love and respect, don't you dare pray for laborers if you are not willing to be one of them. Don't you dare. Yes, let's pray and plead and beg God for more laborers to do everything that he's calling us to do. But let's make sure that we are doing our part to answer our own prayer by serving. You know, this past week, 
I've been doing a lot of reflecting. This past week, I had the privilege of preaching two funerals and bearing two of our longtime, uh, two faithful members. Uh, Bill Morris was 99 years old and was faithful to the end. Uh, Joy Hodge was, I thought 96, but it turns out she was 92 years old. And uh, once again, just a, a blessing for so many years. This church was founded in 1909 with only six members. Her grandparents who raised her were two of those six members. And she was still a part of this church until a few days ago. Can you believe that? But I was reflecting and I was thinking about their lives. And I don't know how much time God is going to give me. I don't know how much time God is going to give you. But I do know this, what matters is not the number of years that we live, what matters is how we serve. What matters is that we serve like Jesus served, that our lives are about the same things that his earthly life was about. David Platt, pastor in Washington, D.C., also a popular author. He wrote a book called Radical a number of years ago, and maybe you've read that book, but I want to leave you with a statement, something he said in that book about what we're going to think and what we are going to want eventually when we get to that point at the end of our lives and look back. Because when that moment comes, we're going to look back. There are going to be some things to us that in that moment are very important. And there are going to be some things to us that in that moment are not very important. So listen to what David Platt says about what we're going to think and what will matter when we come to the end of our lives. He said, and I quote, We will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what is going to matter. And it begins with that initial act of surrender as you follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you join me as we pray right now? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for sending Jesus who came and served and gave his life as a ransom. And he also set the example for us to follow. And so, Father, we pray as we have looked at that example this morning that you would help us to be about doing the very same things that Jesus was about when he walked upon this earth that we would be about teaching and preaching and healing, ministering, serving, touching the whole person. Letting people know that the door to God's kingdom is wide open to whosoever will believe. Help us like Jesus to feel that holy compassion 
Sometimes, God, we, we understand it with our minds, but we don't yet feel it in our hearts. God, we need that punch to the gut. Help us, Lord, to look around and see the people around us who even today are weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. God, I pray for that man or that woman or that child or that young person who's here this morning who needs to take that very first step of faith in following Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We thank you that your word tells us in Matthew chapter 10, you are so close to us. You're as close as our mouths. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, you are so close. You're as close as our hearts. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus died and rose again, we'll be saved. You're so close to that man or that woman who's here today without Jesus Christ. You're right there. So I pray that in this moment, they would see their need for a Savior, that they would call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that this would truly be their day of salvation. Father, help us to take everything that we've read and learned and apply it to our lives, and we'll give you all the thanks and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.